he speaks about the dispensation of the grace of God. If you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which has given me to you word. And yet there's something about this word dispensation or dispensationalism that causes some believers uh, to have something akin to a spiritual panic attack. Uh, because even some who are premillennial in their theology don't particularly care to use this term dispensationalism as though it was a somehow dirty word. Yet here it is in the Bible. The word is found in the word of God. And so, uh, you know, uh, it, it, if the truth be known, uh, irrespective of your position on this theologically, um, every Christian is in some sense at least a partial dispensationalist. Now, let me explain that. If you enjoy a bacon sandwich and you see no necessity for Old Testament dietary laws, that means you're at least a partial dispensationalist, that you see a difference in Old Testament governance and New Testament governance for the Christian. And uh, again, if you have no qualms about wearing clothes made from different fabrics, which none of us do, I presume, uh, again, that would make you at least a partial dispensationalist because in the Old Testament times, you weren't allowed to mix uh, different, types of gar different types of fabric in your garments. And so the truth is that to one degree or another, every believer is, in some sense, uh, a dispensationalist in that he sees a difference, at least, between the Old Testament and the New Testament eras. Yet, whilst there has to be some recognition uh, of the fact that there is still, uh, there, there is this uh, difference that people understand, there's this measure of misgiving about the idea of being a dispensationalist. So in part, that's due to a misunderstanding of dispensationalism, or is perhaps the notion that dispensationalism is a new idea, that it's a novel concept that began with uh, J.N. Darby in the uh, 19th century, or uh, C.I. Schofield <coughs> in the 19th century, or with uh, Lewis Berry Schaefer, the uh, founder of Dallas Theological Seminary in the uh, late 19th, early 20th century. And people say, well, this thing didn't come in till the 18th century. The people never knew anything about this. They didn't believe this until Darby came along. Darby, if you're not familiar, uh, is, the, is the leading light of Brethrenism and uh, ministered much here uh, in Ireland. Uh, and so uh, people look at Darby, they look at Schaefer, they look at uh, Schofield, and they say, well, you know, that's dispensationalism. It came in late in the day. It's a new doctrine. It's a new idea. And there's no saying, you know, if it's, if it's new, it's probably not true. And if it's true, it's probably not new. Okay, so, so they take that saying and they apply it to dispensationalism. Well, perhaps we would be best served if we give a little thought tonight to what we mean by dispensationalism. And I want to begin by defining dispensationalism and uh, thinking particularly about stewardship. But I want to ask, what is meant by a dispensation? What does that word uh, mean? Well, the original Greek word is this word, oikonomos, and uh, that's comprised of two Greek words. Uh, the first word being oiko, the second word being nomos. And so the two words together mean house and law. And so oikonomos quite simply means house rules. And if you were to carry that out to a literal definition, it's an economy, it's a house rule, it's an administration. 
It is God's way of administration on earth during a certain period of time, which is characterized by several distinguishing uh, factors. So you think about it as house rules. Um, you know, every, in every home, there are rules, particularly where there are children. You have house rules, certain things you do and don't do, or your children do and you don't do. Rules about getting up in the morning, rules about personal hygiene, uh, rules about homework, rules that govern their free time, where they go, who they're with, uh, what they're allowed to do when they're out of the home, uh, when they're in the home, when they're to be back home. Uh, and there are rules that govern bedtime. And every one of us as children remember our parents looking at us and saying, it's bedtime. Do you remember that? That was the rule. Uh, so it didn't matter if your parents were, you know, were disciplined or not. There was no flexing. It's particularly during the school term. You always enjoyed getting off school because then maybe you got an extra hour or so to stay up a little bit later. But if it was a school night, you had to be in bed by a certain time. And uh, they just look at you and say, well, you know, it's 15 minutes to bedtime or it's half an hour to bedtime or whatever. And you knew that you'd have to obey that rule. And every child hates those words, it's bedtime. But who grew up without hearing some kind of house rule? Now, understand this. Dispensationalism is not a new doctrine. It was formulated uh, at least 150 years before J.N. Darby came along. And uh, an increasing number of uh, theologians in the Reformation period were beginning to understand um, that, uh, the, that the Bible had a certain um, timeline, if you like. There were certain characteristics uh, along the way that, that matched those timelines. And uh, one of those was a man by the name of Pierre uh, Poiret. He And uh, Poiret came up with a dispensational approach to the Scriptures uh, in 1687. Now, there's a counter to dispensationalism, and that's covenant theology. Uh, well, we're not going to talk about covenant theology tonight. We will talk about it at some point. But covenant theology was largely, uh, was largely founded, or at least largely uh, taught, in 1648 uh, by, a name called, uh, by a man by the name of Johannes uh, Cuxess. And in 1648, he came up with the idea of covenant theology, in 1687, uh, Pierre Poiret came up with the idea of dispensationalism. And so those two systems have governed church history since Reformation times. So if church history was viewed as a clock, this is how it would look if you took the 2,000 years and divided them by 12. Well, covenant theology would have come in at 9.53 and dispensationalism came in at 10.07. In other words, on a, on a clock, if you were to set a clock like that, one came in 15 minutes after the other. So I hardly would describe that as a new doctrine. It's not something that just came out yesterday uh, by no stretch of the imagination. Now, Poirot, or Poiret, sorry, Poirot's, Poirot's a detective. Poiret, <laughs> the theologian. <laughs> Poirot's a completely, <laughs> forget. Anyway, uh, Poiret. <laughs> I have to let David calm himself down back there. <laughs> Poiret came up with a system. It's quite an interesting system. Um, he laid out all the key events in church history, from creation to the flood to the giving of the law to the coming of the prophets to the coming of Christ, the church age or the church uh, period, and then uh, the kingdom. 
And here's how he played this out. If you were to look at his uh, idea of dispensationalism, he saw it in terms of human maturity. So he said the period between creation and the building of the ark was man's infancy. And then between the ark and the flood and the giving of the law was man's childhood. From the law to the prophets was adolescence. From the prophets to the coming of Christ was youth. Then after the coming of Christ, during the church age, man entered into manhood in the early church period, and then into old age as the church begins to decay and it begins to apostatize. He sees that as old, the old age of man, and finally it leads to the kingdom age in which there is this restoration. So that was the initial um, dispensational layout, if you like, uh, under poor A. Now, such a scheme, whilst it's interesting, uh, is, is far from perfect. Uh, and it lacks scriptural support because the Bible never speaks about, uh, and, uh, about time in these kind of uh, terminologies. It doesn't speak about man in his infancy or man in his adolescence or any of those things. So what this man understood was this, that God governed men differently throughout the various stages in history. So in infancy, if you think about human infancy, you know, there's very few rules. When you're an infant, there's very few rules. In, your, in fact, there are no rules in your life. You know, when a baby comes into the world and he's brought home or she's brought home, there are literally no rules at all. So a baby, an infant, gets away with murder, okay? Um, you know, a baby comes into your home and suddenly, you know, you're at their back and call. They're fed, they're watered by their parents. They're not expected to do any chores at home. You know, you don't bring the baby home from the hospital and say, now, here's your bedroom and expect you to tell you're caught up each night, you know. And, you know, it's not going to happen, is it? So, so that this kid comes into the world, he's got no rules whatsoever. In fact, uh, you know, he doesn't even have to wash himself. He doesn't have to clean himself. And so there's absolutely no boundaries uh, for him. But then as the child begins to grow and enters into childhood, suddenly you, well not suddenly, but gradually you introduce boundaries. And uh, you begin to ask little things of the child, pick up your toys after you. Um, you know, you start to teach the child how to feed himself. And you expect the child inevitably to be able to feed themselves. And so the child uh, begins with those abilities to have greater responsibilities uh, you know, they're, as I say, they're maybe asked to do things in, in childhood that you weren't asked to do in infancy. Uh, but there comes a point when even that child doesn't need to be tucked into bed at night. You know, our son just turned 30, and every now and then I'll say to him, do you want me to tuck you in? And jokingly, you know, and, uh, and, he, and he just laugh, you know, at how ridiculous that idea is of your father going up and tucking you into bed when you're 30 years of age. Uh, one of these days he might say yes and shock me. But, uh, but anyway, um, but you know, there's a point where you grow out of that. You become up, you know, you're going up into adolescence, you're heading toward your teenage years. Um, you're, you don't want your mom and dad to tuck, tuck you in anymore. Uh, you know, you're, you're maybe allowed now to stay out a little bit later. Uh, you're allowed to go further from home. The rules are changing. The rules are changing. And uh, you're expected to show responsibility to be back in at a certain time, be back in for dinner or whatever. And you have other responsibilities that start coming upon you, homework and the like. And then, you know, later on you get into youth and, uh, you know, there's again, you know, maybe there's another change. Maybe now you start to receive an allowance. Uh, but as time goes on, 
the child is expected to start earning for himself. You know, the Bible says that, uh, that, a, that a child ought to requite his parents. That means a child should be taught to pay back his parents. And uh, there comes a point, if you're a good parent, or if you're a wise parent, I should say a good parent, but if you're a wise parent, there comes a point where you actually teach your children to pay into the house uh, if they're working, and uh, to pay their way to give housekeeping. And I, all, all our kids used to grumble about that. You know, that we never asked much of them. But uh, certainly, certainly they were using up far more than they were paying in. But uh, if they did pay into the house, they all grumbled about having to give that £20 a month or whatever it was. And then they thought that for that they should get extra privileges. <laughs> but that wasn't quite how it worked. And, and the objective there was to show the, basically show them responsibility, to teach them responsibility. And to show them that life isn't free. And so you're, you're, you're always changing the, the uh, rules. You're always, if you like, moving the goalposts. And what's happening here? Are the parents different? Is it a different parent in infancy than it is in youth? Well, no, it's exactly the same parent. But what's happening is that the responsibilities given to the child are changing with each period of life. And that's pretty much how it is with dispensationalism. As the course of history develops, as we move from creation to the flood and, and to the giving of the law, to the coming of Christ, to the uh, church, to the kingdom, and so on, as we move through that, that particular series of events, you know, God himself doesn't change. But the way in which he governs men changes. Their responsibilities change. What is expected of them uh, changes. And this is a question of, of stewardship, of expectations. Now, the word dispensation in its totality, if you were to really nail it down, it would mean to divide, to apportion, to administer, uh, to manage the affairs of a, a residential home of an inhabited house. So the central idea of dispensationalism is the managing or administrating, uh, administering of the affairs of a household. And when we look in the scripture, we see that's exactly how this word is used. Look in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Now remember the word is oikonomos, uh, meaning house rules or house ruler. And uh, chapter 16 and verse 2 of uh, the Gospel of Luke. Here's the parable of the unjust steward. And it says, And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship. Oikonomeu is the uh, Greek word. That's the word dispensation. Give an account of your dispensation. Uh, for thou mayest no more longer steward. You're not, no longer going to manage because you, in this instance, hadn't managed well. He'd wasted his goods. Uh, the noun okonomos is used 10 times in Scripture where it's rendered as a steward or a chamberlain. A chamberlain, again, is a, someone who manages a house, uh, it manages a, a bedroom, if you like. Look in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12 and verse 42. It says, Who then is the faithful and wise Steward, there's the word, okinomos. Uh, who's, the, who's the faithful and wise house ruler whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household? 
so you so you see it there, and there are other places that you uh, will find that word as well. Chapter sixteen, verse one. Again, the parable of the unjust steward. And he said unto his disciples, "There was a certain rich man which had a steward, Okinomos, uh, dis, who had a dispensation, and the same was accused unto him that he wasted his goods." And there are other places likewise. And the word is used nine times uh, as uh, as a noun. And uh, that's right throughout the Bible, where it's firstly translated with the word stewardship or dispensation or edifying. Now, here's the question. What is a steward? Well, a steward is described as a household manager. And uh, one of the best examples of a household manager is Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. Let's have a look in Genesis chapter 39. You know the story. We've just been through it in our studies on Sunday morning as we've looked through the book of Genesis in detail. <coughs> and of course, we extensively covered the life of Joseph. <coughs> Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, and then he was bought by Potiphar, a high ranking official in the Egyptian government. And verse 1 of chapter 39 says, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of the Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, uh, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer of his house, over his house, and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favoured. Now, if you, unless you were asleep there, you, uh, you shouldn't have missed the, re the, the, the uh, recurring phrase, all that he had. All that he had. All that he had. Potiphar gave all that he had into the hand of Joseph. In other words, Joseph was entirely in charge of the house. There wasn't anything that Potiphar was showing any particular interest in. He completely trusted Joseph to take care of his belongings. You know, that's rather like what premiership footballers do. Premiership footballers earn so much money, they don't know how much money they have. So they usually then appoint somebody who manages their affairs. And uh, if they want something, they just call this person up and they arrange for them to have this car or this home or whatever it is they have. But if you were to ask the average footballer in the middle of his career, how much does he have? He really wouldn't know. He would, he would know what he's paid, perhaps but he wouldn't know how much money he had in the bank. There's somebody else who manages that for him. That person, in, in, uh, in archaic terms, we would refer to as a steward. And we see this in Joseph's life. Everything is given into his hand, and Potiphar doesn't know what he has, uh, but he completely trusts Joseph with his property. But Joseph is not the owner of the property. <clears throat> in other words, you know, he couldn't do as he pleased. Uh, with the belongings, but rather he had a responsibility to Potiphar 
concerning those things in his possession. And we see this most vividly in the, as, the verse, as the chapter unfolds. If you pick up in verse 7, And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. And he seeks to, she seeks to seduce him. And he refused and said unto his master's wife, Now notice what he says, Behold, my master wotteth not or knows not what is with me in the house, uh, and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So Joseph is a tremendous example of a steward, uh, because first of all, he is a house manager. Second of all, he has certain privileges. The, he has everything given over to him. Uh, you know, he can enjoy, to some degree, the possessions of that home. But he also has responsibilities. There are certain things he cannot do. And one of the things he cannot do, quite reasonably, is lie with his, his, uh, his, his uh, master's wife. And so there were boundaries. And as I say, the wife is the obvious boundary here. So his post as steward carried with it certain privileges, uh, but he had the, had the trust of Potiphar, but he also had certain responsibilities. There were limits to what he could do. Now, throughout our lives, to lesser or greater degrees, we experience the same things. You know, uh, as pastor of the church here, uh, I have certain privileges that come with my position. Uh, so, for example, I do not have a nine-to-five job. Um, so, you know, it's possible uh, that I could choose at some point in a day to attend a personal business. I might decide in the afternoon I'm going to go shopping. I'm going to get the, help get the groceries in or I'm going to attend to something in my house uh, and then maybe I'm going out in the evening. Now, obviously, I, I don't want to abuse my privileges and that would be wrong. Uh, if I didn't put any effort into ministry, that would be wrong. And so I have certain responsibilities, you know, and you expect me, quite rightly, uh, to perform those responsibilities. So you expect me to be prepared for preaching on Sunday. So I'm expected to spend some time in the study. You would expect me to visit folks if they were ill in hospital. Uh, and, uh, and again, that's something that I take seriously and would do as part of my ministry. Uh, you would expect me, if there was a wedding or a funeral, to officiate at that wedding or funeral under normal circumstances. And I would normally expect that. You know, if, I wouldn't say, if somebody called me up and said, look, you know, I want to get married, I wouldn't say, okay, I'll speak to Roger and see if he can sort that out for you. It's not Roger's responsibility. It's my responsibility. But I have certain privileges that come with that responsibility. And so that's the idea. And you're likely the same in your place of work, wherever you work. There's probably times that you can do certain things that otherwise you would be able to do. So you have privileges afforded to you as a consequence of your, the nature of your work. But you have responsibilities. And so that's, that's basically the idea that's at the root of dispensationalism. <laughs> that God at certain times gave believers certain privileges and certain responsibilities that they needed to live up to. Now, let's come back to our definition. A dispensation is a matter of stewardship. And any stewardship involves three things. Number one, the overall ownership of the things being managed. Who owns it all? In Joseph's case, it was Potiphar. 
the things themselves, what is being managed. In Joseph's case, it was the household and the possessions within the household. We would call him today a trustee, perhaps. And then there's the steward himself, the manager who is charged and accountable for those things. Well, let's apply that to what we know about the Lord. Okay, so let's start with this question. You know, who, who owns all things? The Lord owns everything, doesn't he? The Bible says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. Psalm 24 and verse 1. So the Lord owns everything. Hebrews 3, 4 says, for every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. Deuteronomy 10, 14, behold the heaven and the heavens of heavens is the Lord thy God's and the earth also with all that therein is. 1 Chronicles 29, thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power of the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, thou art exalted as head above all. So the first step in understanding Christian stewardship is to understand that God owns everything. Everything belongs to the Lord. You know, some folks uh, balk at the idea of, uh, of giving to the Lord proportionately to their income. And they will say, well, you know, how much should I give to the Lord? The question is not how much of your money should you give to the Lord. The question is how much of God's money should you keep? <laughs> That's the real question. And so uh, everything you own belongs to the Lord. I think I shared with you before about a pastor in America who loaned me his car, beautiful car, absolutely beautiful car, uh, a Buick car, just probably the poshest car I've ever driven. It was like driving a mattress. It was just so comfortable, and uh, it just had every mod con imaginable. And a huge, big American car, you know, as you can, as you can imagine. So uh, I was driving this car from his home in Indiana to uh, the southern United States to Florida, which is, I think, about a... If I remember correctly, it was about a 16-hour drive. So it was a long drive ahead and I stopped at a halfway at a motel to take a rest. But, uh, but anyway, as I pulled out of his drive, he told me which way to go. He said, you know, you want to go up the end of the street here and turn left and do this and that, and you'll be on the freeway and you can get on your way to Florida. Well, what did I do? I did exactly the opposite of what he told me. I pulled out of his drive. Instead of turning left, I turned right and went down to the bottom of the street, hit a cul-de-sac. And then came back up the street. And the pastor was looking at me like, what have I done giving this numpty my car? <laughs> and so, so I rolled the window down. And I looked at him and I said, well, pastor, say goodbye to your car. <laughs> and he said, he said, it's not my car, it's the Lord's car. <laughs> and he was quite rightly reminding me that the Lord owns everything and that I should take care of it. As, just as it was truly uh, the Lord's. So the first step of stewardship is recognizing that nothing is really ours, that all of it belongs to God. Like Joseph entering Potiphar's house, you come into this world with nothing, and uh, like Joseph leaving for Potiphar's prison, you take nothing with you when you die. So it all belongs to God. Everything you own isn't really owned by you at all. You leave it all behind, everything. You don't take anything with you, not even the clothes on your back you take with you. Uh, everything is left behind. So if the Lord is the owner of the whole earth and all that in it is, uh, who then fulfills the role of the steward? And that's where we come in. Man fulfills that role. Man is made responsible for that which belongs to God. And his general responsibility in that respect is like Joseph 
that he prove himself faithful. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. It says this quite simply. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. So that's the general rule. If you're a house manager, if you're a steward, if God has put things into your charge, the only requirement is, is that you are faithful with those things, that you take care of the business that God has assigned you. But beyond that generality, there are some specifics. The steward is assigned certain duties. You know, Joseph had certain duties. He was probably told he had to clean this room and uh, attend to that particular DIY job or whatever it was. There were certain things he had to do. He would have been given certain responsibilities. And so, if you like, there are house rules. So, even though in our house there are no children, there are still some general rules, okay? So one of the general rules is that, you know, if, if one of us makes the dinner, the other one makes the tea. If, uh, if, the, if the bin needs put out and it's a wet and windy and cold night, Hazel puts it out. <laughs> but if it's a nice sunny evening, I may, no, I have to put it out no matter what, Okay. Uh, we have a dog, so there's a house rule about walking the dog. If it is sunny and pleasant, Hazel walks the dog. If it's rainy and cold, I walk the dog. Not always. She's balking, but actually, you wait till the heart of winter comes. You wait till the heart of winter comes. Anyway, I, we joke about this, but there are rules. Even, even in a house without children, there are rules. There are certain things that one person does and the other person does, and those are your responsibilities. Okay? So there are house rules. Uh, but in, in the earth, whilst God remains the same and is Lord over all, the house rules change from time to time within the history of man as it unfolds. So Adam, in the infancy of human history, to use Poiré's term, had no Bible, as we saw last week, to speak of. But he conversed with God in the cool of the day. You and I don't converse with God in the cool of the day. That was a privilege unique to Adam in the Garden of Eden. He had different responsibilities to you and I. Uh, you know, he had no Bible. We have 66 books in our Bible. Uh, so we meet God through the Word of God. He met God in a tangible way every single day. The house rules for Noah were different from the house rules for Abraham. And the house rules for Abraham were different for the house, from the house rules for Moses. And so you get the picture. It's the same God throughout. God never changes. He's immutable. The same yesterday, today, and forever. But there are different rules and different responsibilities at different times. Now, just as in our own personal development, our lives are charged with responsibilities unique to that period of time in our lives, we also carry some of the same responsibilities all the way through your life. So when you're an infant, for example, you're taught, I hope, uh, to honor and respect your parents. And, uh, you know, when you're a child, you, you're taught to honor your mom and dad, to be obedient. And you're told that you have a, maybe have a bedtime at 
7 o'clock or 6 o'clock or whatever it is. But when you're a teenager, you still have to honor and respect your parents. That doesn't change. That particular rule is carried over from infancy into adolescence and early teenage life. But now you might have a bedtime that's a bit later, 9 o'clock, 9.30, 10 o'clock. So it changes over that period of time. When you're a young adult, again, you still honor and respect your parents, but you may now go to bed any time you choose. Your parents don't say to you, go to bed at 10 o'clock. They expect you to show some degree of responsibility and to say to your parents or to just say to yourself, well, you know, I've got school in the morning or I've got university class in the morning, I'm going to bed. And so, the, so you have this this. Uh, degree of scope, your scope has uh, has widened. You, you know your 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 uh, responsibilities are much the same, but your privileges have increased. And so, the young adult must do some things that he did in infancy, but here's other things he would not have done when he was a child or a teenager. And he has to learn to live with the consequence of his choices uh, if he has to get up for work or for lectures the next morning. Now, let's apply this to scripture. Let's apply this principle. And I want you to see. Let's think about Noah. We're thinking about how this principle applies before, uh, under, and after the law. Okay, now the law being the, the commandments, the Ten Commandments as given to Moses. So here's Noah. And Noah lived before the law. So Noah had the responsibility of believing what God said. God told him there was going to be a flood. He told him he's going to judge the world. He was tired of its violence and its corruption and that he was going to destroy everybody in the world uh, unless they came into the ark. So Noah had the responsibility to believe that. He had the privilege of walking with God throughout that period in life. He had the responsibility of obeying God. He had to build an ark and prepare for this judgment. During uh, Noah's time, uh, a, a murderer should be put to death, okay? So uh, that was given to Noah once he came out of the ark. A murderer would be put to death. Um, and then uh, animals could be sacrificed, were to be sacrificed to God. All right, so Noah did that. He made an altar. He sacrificed animals to the Lord. But God did not tell Noah to keep the Sabbath, nor did he tell Noah to circumcise male children, nor did he tell Noah to baptize anybody in water. Okay, so... There are some things that are true of our own era and some things that are different, all right? Now, that's before the law. Watch what happens now with David under the law. King David comes along. He lives after Moses has been up Mount Sinai, received the Ten Commandments and the other commandments besides, and he has his own responsibilities, but in a different time period. And so David, under the law, had the responsibility of believing what God had said. In particular, he had the responsibility to believe the Messiah was coming. He had the responsibility to believe that God was going to uh, put someone on his throne, ultimately from his own tribe, who would rule and reign forever. He had to believe these things. He too had the privilege of walking with God. He was a man after God's own heart. He had the responsibility of obeying God. He had to obey the law as given to Moses. The murderer, if someone murdered during David's lifetime, they were under the law still to be put to death. That was still the sentence. Animals were still being sacrificed to God, only with more 
ritual and ceremony attached to it. Whereas Noah, you know, just built an altar wherever he was, and uh, you know that was that. Uh, David would have had to go to the tabernacle and a specific place and and uh, give his altar, give his sacrifice there, and so on. Uh, but then God told him through the law to keep the Sabbath and told him, as a consequence of uh, Abraham's relationship with the Lord, that he should circumcise male children. So Noah didn't have those rules. David has those rules, and he has them as a consequence of God's dealings with Moses and as a consequence of God's dealings with Abraham. God did not tell David to baptize believers. Nowhere will you find David baptizing anybody or anybody in that period of time baptizing anybody. Uh, Moses didn't do it. Joshua didn't do it. None of the prophets did it. Nobody baptized anyone. All right, let's think about the application uh, after the law. And we're going to think about Paul. Paul had the responsibility of believing what God had said. Remember, his duty was to believe the gospel as is ours. He had the privilege of walking with God. He had a responsibility to obey God. You know, the Lord Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And uh, the, John says the commandments of God are not grievous. So we are still responsible to obey God. Uh, a murderer should still be put to death. Some things haven't changed, you see. Now, in our society today, we don't have capital punishment. Uh, but really and truly, if we were exercising biblical governance, we would have capital punishment. People who murder people, uh, people who, who, who murder children and so on would be done away with. We wouldn't have prisons full of people uh, who did such horrendous things. That would have been true. That was true throughout from the time of Noah onward. And it's still true today, although our government doesn't practice it. Animal sacrifices, however, are no longer necessary. You see, Noah had to give an animal sacrifice. Abraham made animal sacrifices. Moses made animal sacrifices. But the Christian and Paul living after the law, after Christ, no longer has to make animal sacrifices by necessity. God did not tell him to observe the Sabbaths or to circumcise male children. Now, he could choose as a Jew to observe the Sabbath, but he wasn't required to do so, according to the book of Colossians. And uh, no one was to judge him concerning the, the Sabbath days, nor indeed did he circumcise children, uh, or was he required to circumcise children, or are people in this era required to circumcise children? And then God told him to do something that he hadn't told the previous Bible characters. He told him to baptize believers in water, and that's in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission. Now, what are we to make of all of that? Let me wrap this up. That men of, uh, are stewards of God's grace, and they have the same Father God, but different responsibilities as time unfolded. Now, that's essentially what we mean when we speak of dispensations. It's not very complex. You know, people make it more complicated than it needs to be. But what we're saying is that certain people at certain times lived under certain house rules that were unique to them. They lived in different dispensations. A different governance was in place. They had differing privileges. You know, you think about it, 
Um, Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. Uh, Noah uh, had the privilege of, of hearing God speak to him. Abraham had visions. Moses climbed Sinai and, and saw, you know, saw the glory of the Lord. And those were privileges that were given to those men that are not given to us. They had different privileges, but they also had different responsibilities. So, you know, Adam's responsibility was to tend to the garden and not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was all he had to do. But he failed in the second part of that. Uh, Noah, he had to build an ark. That was his responsibility. You know, uh, Abraham, well, he had to inherit the promises and be a sojourner in the land. Uh, Moses, well, he had to oversee the giving of the law and, and the establishment of the nation under the law and so on. So they had different responsibilities. There was different governance in operation in, 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 uh, in their lives. Same God, but different rules. And that change of governance we call a dispensation. That's all it means. There's a difference in governance. So whatever the specifics, the governing principle of all stewardship remains the same. A steward is to be found faithful. Now, next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the dispensations. And I'm going to help you to see specifically how things changed from one period to another period. And we're going to see the uh, the responsibilities in action. We're going to see the, 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 uh, the, the failure that happened. We're going to see what God did about that and so on. And we're going to look at that from the very beginning, from Adam all the way through to the kingdom age. We're going to cover the entire span of biblical history from beginning to end, from the creation to the consummation of all things and the establishment of the kingdom. And we're going to see how God governed men's affairs throughout that period. Same God different governance, same God, different privileges, same God, different responsibilities. And we're going to leave that there for this evening. Hopefully that makes some sense to you. Clear as mud, you say. <laughs> right, let's go to the Lord.